As you're making your way back to your seat, if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able, we're into Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. Grab one of these blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. Grab a print Bible. Turn to page 1160. We are into Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, welcome. My name is Dustin. I get to be the lead pastor here. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you after the service. We're on to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're just joining us, we're going through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, just passage by passage. Uh, we'll be in Ephesus or in Ephesians until the end of the year. We are into Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So again, welcome on behalf of the Lord to his house. And let's hear from God's inerrant and holy word. This is Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together as God's beloved people? Father, we thank you for this letter to believers in Ephesus and to believers like us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present here among us, that you would open up our ears and open up our eyes to see and to hear everything that you would have us to understand and to comprehend. Lord, would you show us exceedingly more than we're even asking or thinking now through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So let me ask you a question. How do you express something that is ineffable? <laughs> How do you express something that is too hard to put into words. That's what the word ineffable means. How do you express something that you can't put into words? Have you ever known something so deeply that words fail you? Well, let me give you an example of what I think this could sound like. Listen to this for just a minute, will you? Did you hear it? 
There was a message in there. No, did you hear the message? Uh, when you first listen to John Coltrane's famous jazz album, A Love Supreme, uh, you know, if you don't know who John Coltrane is, he's the greatest saxophonist probably to ever play the instrument. He recorded this album in 1964. Uh, anybody remember that year? I don't. I think my parents were alive then. I'll have to double check. It's quite a while ago. But what you may not know about John Coltrane, this famous saxophonist, uh, in his album, A Love Supreme, is that this is the only record he ever recorded where he wrote liner notes in the vinyl. So if you were to buy a vinyl record back in the day and you were to read what was written inside, this is the only time that John Coltrane ever tried to explain to people like you and me why he wrote the jazz music that he did. In the liner notes, John Coltrane, it's the only time he ever tried to explain his music, he said this, Dear listener, all praise be to God, to whom all praise is due. During the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which has led me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted to me through his grace. All praise to God. But as time and events moved on, a period of irresolution did prevail. I entered into a phase which was contradictory to the pledge and away from the esteemed path. But thankfully, now and again, through the unerring and merciful hand of God, I do perceive and have been duly reinformed of his omnipotence and of our need for and dependence on him. At this time, I would like to tell you that no matter what, it is with God. He is gracious and merciful. His way is in love through which we all are. It is truly a love supreme. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say, thank you, God. <laughs> Friends, did you hear that message in the song? You may not have caught it, but the way that that album begins is with a gong. Why do you strike a gong? because something important is about to be communicated. And then if you can think back to how that song began, it, you, you looked lost, I could see it on your faces. It's what's going on, where is this song going? And then just all of a sudden, like God's grace in your life, something appears, and what was it? Boom, 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 boom. And as soon as that bass line started, half your smiles just erupted on your face because it was like a period of irresolution was prevailing, and then all of a sudden, cutting through the fog and the confusion is a clear baseline. But that baseline, friend, is communicating something to you if you have ears to hear it and eyes to see it. You know what it is? Uh, if you were to listen to the rest of this song, I won't make you listen to all seven minutes of this song, but by the end of the song, John Coltrane, the greatest saxophonist of all time, wants you to know the point of the song. And so by the end of the song, he starts singing to you. In fact, all of these famous jazz musicians, as they're playing, start to sing to you. You know what they sing? A love supreme, a love supreme, boom, 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 a love supreme. Like God's grace, a supreme love had entered John Coltrane's life. So why am I bringing all this up? You know, if you were to listen to that beautiful song, John Coltrane is trying to use everything in him, everything that he's got, to praise the living God that saved him. 
He's trying to give praise back to the only God that is worthy of everything John Coltrane can think of and do. If you were to listen to the rest of the song, that's what he plays on the saxophone. I, I think it's called a riff. I don't know if you riff on a saxophone. I apologize to any jazz musicians. I only know guitar. I'm going to call it a riff, okay? He plays that riff. He plays it in all 12 keys. And guess what? If there were 14 keys, he would have played it in those two. Why is he playing this riff in every key? Because God is worthy of everything that this incredible musician can give to the Lord. Why am I bringing this up? How do you express something that's ineffable? <laughs> How do you express something that's too hard to put into words? How do you express what happens to you when you truly, finally understand who Jesus Christ is? There's a difference. Do you know that? There's a difference between knowing about Jesus and hearing words about him and actually knowing him. And the only way you know the difference is if you know the difference. You know how you know the melody? You start to sing the melody and then you catch it. There is a change in your life when you come to know the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you that know him, you know that you know him. But how do you explain that to people? How do you talk to people about something that's so inexpressible? I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the living Jesus Christ, the one who is alive. I know him. How do you get people to get it once you've gotten it? <laughs> well, I think that's what Paul is trying to express in our passage this morning. If you were to look down at Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21, uh, some of this is going to be lost because we have an English translation, but a lot of this is Paul almost tripping over himself to try to explain how much he loves God because God has given him a supreme love. So sometimes Paul doesn't even finish his thoughts. <laughs> He's like me. Uh, sometimes I'll be talking to my wife and I will notice that I forget a key word and she'll be like, what are you telling me? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just talking so fast. I can't stop. And I will miss the key word that I'm trying to explain to them. This is sort of how Paul is dictating the letter of Ephesians right now. Look at verse 18. He says he wants you to have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And then he forgets to tell us the length and the height and the breadth and the depth of what? <laughs> he just forgets to finish the sentence. And then he wants you to know that we will be glorifying God forever. And listen to how he says it in verse 21. He says, throughout all generations, you know, forever you know, forever and ever. Amen. He keeps saying it over and over again. He's trying to express something that's ineffable, something that's almost beyond words. Frank Thielman, uh, the professor at Beeson Divinity School in his great commentary on Ephesians, uh, he actually was one of the key people translating the English Standard Version. Uh, Frank Thielman writes in his commentary on Ephesians that in this section, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, Paul seems to be trying to express the ineffable. So what I want you to see this morning is simply two things. I want you to sort of hear the melody of God's supreme love. First thing, I want you to hear the melody, so to speak, of God's supreme love for you. And then I want you to sing it. I want you to hear the melody of God's supreme love for you, and then I want you to sing it. So how do we catch that melody? How do we do that? Well, look at verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So how do you start to catch this melody? The first thing is you have to use your body. 
You know, friends, I don't know if you know this, you're not just a brain on a stick. You have a body for a purpose and a holy purpose. And notice that when Paul is trying to express his love for God and trying to put into words how much he has realized how much God loves him, this power of the gospel, what does he do? He says, I fall on my knees and I give praise to God. I bow my knees. You know, uh, when I think about, you know, our posture, you know, a lot of times you're like, it's not about your posture. And it's like, okay, I understand what you mean by that. Everybody's welcome to God's house. But there's also a sense that your posture really matters. So on one sense, yes, I agree. Posture doesn't really matter, just like how you dress doesn't matter. Except, you know, on any sales pitch you have ever given to a potential client or any date with a cute girl you've ever been on, you know what you do? What do you do? How did you first date your wife? You stood up straight. You tried to look taller than you were. You talked deeper. Why? Why do you do that? Because your posture matters. You know, have you ever tried to buy, buy a used car before? You don't slouch. You try to exude confidence. Why? Because your posture matters. So when you and I are confronted with a holy and loving God, your posture matters. I already know who's listening to me and who's not. You know how? Because there's a posture <laughs> that looks like that. I can see you. Your posture matters. How do people respond when they get near the holiness of God? Revelation, you know that mysterious book that those you know, people that sometimes make you uncomfortable like to talk about? Even Revelation. They say it this way, and all the angels were standing around the throne of God and the elders and the four creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Doesn't that sound familiar to what we just read? They burst out in praise, and that all of those words fall short, but what are they doing? They're falling on their faces. So if you want to start catching the melody, friends, what I would suggest to you is in your prayer life, or even here in worship, consider your posture. If you haven't tried bowing in prayer, friends, bow in prayer. It does something. Not something magical, but there is a sense that we give him whole body praise. What is the reason that Paul, when he thinks about God, bows his knees? Look at verse 14. He says, for this reason. Well, what is that reason? You know, he says, for this reason, is just, you know, he's just throwing it out there. Well, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, at the beginning of this chapter, same page, Ephesians 3, verse 1, he starts that sentence with what? For this reason. Now look down at verse 14, for this reason. You see, what's happening is Paul's dictating this letter, and in uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, Paul's basically explaining the message of the gospel and how he was a sinner saved by grace. And now God has called him to tell all peoples about Jesus Christ. But now in verse 14, he kind of goes back to where he, he was like, actually, I was trying to get to this other point. This was kind of an aside. I let Nate preach on the aside last week. Now let's get back to his primary point, right, in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What is that reason? Friends, if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, the reason is very simple. Look at verse 13. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, because God has entered our world as the person Jesus Christ, fully God, and yet miraculously fully man, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the Old Testament laws and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, the great message of the gospel is that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are important in the eyes of the world or whether the eyes of the world think you are unimportant. It is for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It is the truly multinational people of God. And it's not just for this people group, it's for all peoples everywhere. And Paul, a Jew, is declaring this to all of the Gentiles, that they too can be children and offspring of Abraham. They can know the one true God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And it was all made possible because God entered our world, and he took the punishment of all of our sin on the cross. And so now God is not going to reveal his anger against you if you come to faith in him, because all of his anger went on Jesus God offers you forgiveness because he's already paid the penalty of our sins on the cross. And we know that Jesus isn't lying. We know that God is going to one day make all things new in this world because Jesus Christ is alive. His heart is beating. It's the down payment. It's the first fruits of a new heavens and a new earth. It's the reason you and I have hope. And it's the reason I will preach this till I die. Jesus Christ is alive not just in my heart, but actually alive. And he calls all people to know him by faith. Friends, this is what Paul has been transformed by. He's no longer proud of his ethnic identity. He's no longer proud of his circumcision. He counts all of those things as rubbish when compared to knowing God like this. You know what he's doing? He's trying to explain the ineffable difference between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. There is a change that has taken place in Paul, and it happens in every heart of everyone who comes to know the risen Lord Jesus Christ. How do we catch this rhythm? We use our whole bodies in praise. Look at verse 315. He goes on and helps us to see this. He says, he reminds us who God is. In verse 15, he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, part of catching the melody of this song about God's expansive love is recognizing who God is. He's the creator of everything. You know, I like to say that he has created everything from your toenails to the supernovas and the galaxies and everything in between. God has made every angelic being, everything in the unseen realm, and he has made every human being you have ever met. And they were all made in his image. And they are all made to know him and reflect his glory and truth. Friends, every family on heaven and the earth is named. That means they come from God. And what does that mean? That means, friends, that God is worthy of all of our praise. Everything that you have, every key, <laughs> is worthy of giving praise to God. So I know that's uh, complicated. Uh, I know that can be hard to understand. And we haven't gotten to the really complicated part yet because verses 16 through 19, if you were to look down, this is where Paul starts to get really complicated and confusing. And I can just uh, imagine that poor scribe that's trying to write down everything that Paul's saying as he's saying it out loud, saying, write this down. 
And I can sympathize because I tend to talk fast, and I get this impression for some reason that Paul talked really fast (laughs) and sometimes forgot to finish his sentences. But again, he's trying to express something that is perhaps inexpressible. But Paul wants us to see this melody, and he wants us to learn to sing it ourselves, to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and then to be able to sing it. So the first thing we see in verse 16 is that this is according to the riches of his glory. Do you see that right there? Verse, what does it mean, the riches of his glory? I mean, I think this is basically Paul saying, because God is so amazing. Because God is so amazing. What are we supposed to do? Well, for through 16 through 19, Paul lists about five or six things that he wants for us to know and to believe and then to be able to sing and to know for ourselves. But it gets a little complicated. So the first thing he says is he wants you and me to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner beings. You see that? Then he says he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And then he sort of blurts out in verse 17, you are rooted and grounded in God's love. And then he goes on and he says he wants us to have strength to comprehend with all of the saints. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? He wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And he wants us to be filled paradoxically with something called the fullness of God. Now, I just want to press pause and acknowledge that it's a little hard to follow Paul's grammar here. You know, this is why a lot of commentators all convey on some level that sometimes it's hard to understand exactly what Paul is communicating. So let me sort of break this down as easily as I can. I'm not going to follow that, that line that I just said, that list, but I'm going to try to acknowledge everything in this passage, but I'm going to go a little out of order. But I think this will clear it up. So the first thing I want you to see that Paul wants you to know. Remember, Paul wants you to catch this melody. He wants you to go from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. He wants you to hear the melody, and then he wants you to sing the melody, so to speak. The first thing is he wants Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. Did you see that? May Christ dwell in your heart through faith. What does it mean to dwell? Well, uh, you know, in Greek, there's two words for dwelling. You know, so Paul's originally writing in the ancient language of Greek. And so there's two words, you know, languages sometimes have different words for the same thing. Well, Greek has two words for what it means to dwell. Uh, And one of them means that you're just sort of passing through. Have you ever lived somewhere just temporarily for a job or maybe on vacation? You know, this past weekend, I went to Sun River with my family for a few days, and it was awesome. And did we live in Sun River? Yes, but for like a weekend. (laughs) You know, that's one kind of living. We were dwelling there for a couple of days, and we came back home. But there's another Greek word for what it means to really make some place your home. You You know what makes your home great? It's things like your coffee mug goes in the exact place every single morning, doesn't it? You've got your place where you put your coffee mug. Or you have your bathroom perfectly set up. You know, your toothbrush goes there. Your toothpaste goes there, right? There's a little, you have your seat, you know, in your home where you like to sit and you hate it when your sister or your brother sits in your seat, right? That's your seat. That's what makes a home a home. You know, we've all lived temporarily in places, but there's something to making someplace your home. So the reason I I say this, because when it says, may Christ dwell in your hearts, which word do you think Paul's using? He's using the term for home. Friend, may Christ make his home in your hearts through faith. Don't just have a season of life where you investigate Jesus. He won't leave you that option. Jesus is too holy 
too transforming to just be a season in your life. He's not just something you dabble in like a vacation. He wants to make his home your heart. Let him dwell there. And when I say the word heart, you know, um, sometimes we mistake what the Bible means by heart. Because when we say heart, we typically think heart is like the seat of my emotions. So I, I love Jesus. Jesus is a cool guy. He, was, he did important things. I like Jesus is in my heart. Well, is that really what Paul means or the Bible means when it says heart? Heart actually doesn't just mean your emotions. It's actually much deeper than that. Your heart is actually your will and your desires. What do you most want in this life? What do you daydream about? If you had extra money, what would you give towards? That's actually what's in your heart. That's why Jesus says all of the words of our mouth, they come from where? They come from the deep wellspring of our hearts. Christ wants to go all the way there. Christ wants to make his home your heart. Not just so that you think positive thoughts about Jesus, but that Jesus changes you from the inside out. So you become whom you are always meant to be. You know, a person that's merciful. A person that's humble and meek. A person that forgives. A person that can let things go. A person that can forgive themselves and not just others. You know, the image of God. Paul wants that for you. But notice that Paul uses a word twice in here that I think is key to understanding our whole passage. Paul in verse 16 and in verse 18 says that this takes strength. Did you catch that? This takes strength. And he says it's strength that we will need to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. But what is Paul talking about? Well, verse 19, it tells us it's the love of Christ that he's trying to get us to see. But here's what I want to suggest to you, friends, and you've got to let this transform you. Hear me on this. It takes strength. It takes inner strength, more inner strength than you have to believe that God loves you. You don't have the biceps to hold the weight of God's love for you. It takes an act of the very Holy Spirit of God to enter your life so that the Holy Spirit and your spirit are like this, to accept that God loves you. Not that God loves your grandkids and all the children of the world because, you know, Jesus loves all the children of the world or how that song goes. I'm talking about you, singular, do you believe that God loves you? Paul says it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't hold this by yourself. Paul says in verse 19 that this surpasses our knowledge, that God's love goes beyond what you and I can understand. And I think what Paul means by that is believing in God's love is not just something you do with your brain. It's something that you do in your very core of who you are. But also, I think a lot of us struggle to accept that God loves us because we know who we are. The, my, my issue, here's my issue. You want to know my issues? Well, I have several, and you can ask Caroline about them later. Um, here's the issue. The issue is not just that I sin. There's a deeper issue than the sin in my life. You know what it is? I want to sin. And the reason I don't sin is because I'm not given more opportunities to sin. And if you gave me more opportunities, I would sin that way too. So there's something deeper than just my behavior. 
Martin Luther, that great reformer, said the, the, sin in, the sin that fights us is that we have the inward bent of the heart. I'm nice to you. I'm nice to people because I want them to be nice to me. I'm righteous because I want to be proud of myself. I want to be a good person because I don't want a savior. There's something deeper that you and I need, which is the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit and our spirit like this to really believe that as bad as we are, God's love outpaces even the worst things that we've done. You know, um, when I talk to people about how much God loves them, you know what happens? They, all, they start to look away, and they don't really want to be confronted with this. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that people struggle so much to believe that basic message? Like, no, God really loves you. Like right now, even knowing what you did this morning, or whatever you did last night, I don't know, knowing everything about you, he still loves you. You know, what happens is when we're confronted with that level of love, we usually crumple and we don't want to have to deal with it. And I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, this, you know, past weekend, we uh, took that trip to Sun River and I read a book and it so shaped me because it was such a reminder of God's love for me and God's love for my son with disabilities and it was so overwhelmingly clear that God loves me and God loves my children that I just bawled. And I was like, I couldn't finish the page. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to cast the book aside because I just didn't have the biceps. I didn't have the spine to accept the love of God, to really rest in it. Friends, you and I, we turn away from God's love. But what Paul says is, no, don't turn away Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you strength and give you a backbone and muscles to accept the weight of God's gift. That's what you need to do, is not turn away, but to accept the love of God. But it takes the Spirit. It takes accepting that you have to accept His forgiveness, which means you have to forgive yourself. You've got to understand that this goes beyond your understanding. And then in verse 18... Remember that beautiful sentence where Paul's tripping over his words and forgets to tell us it's the breadth and the length and the depth of the love of God? Paul throws in that little phrase, may you do this with all the saints. Friends, hearing the message of God's love, oftentimes we have to hear that from other Christians. We've got to help each other hear that. When you are married, one of the greatest blessings you have is that when you forgive your spouse, you are reminding your spouse of the forgiveness that they have in Christ Jesus. When you love your kids, regardless of what they do, you are reminding your kids of what? God's love for you, regardless of what you do. Friends, it takes strength to believe in the love of God for you, but that's why God has given you his spirit. All you need to do is ask. So let me keep going. How are we supposed to, you know, finish up this passage? Well, there's one more thing I, I, I want to point to, partly because it's the whole title from this sermon series that we're spending like four months on. It is verse 17, and this is my favorite part about Paul. This is where I start to see myself and Paul a little bit. Verse 17 right there. You'll notice it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, that's a great English translation, but actually in the little Greek, Paul just sort of blurts out, you are rooted and grounded 
in love. He uses two metaphors. One is an agricultural metaphor of being rooted. The other one is being grounded, like built in a house. Like you, the bedrock of your life is God's love for you. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, we don't, you know, know exactly how Paul would have sounded, but I like to think that he shouted this out in the middle of nowhere as he's, you know, having this guy write this letter. And, uh, you know, if, if, we, if I was doing a translation of this, I would have put that all in caps. You know, has anyone ever texted you all in caps? Have you ever got a text message and it's all in caps? You know what I'm talking about? It's like the worst thing. Whenever someone texts me in caps, you know what I'd say? I text them back, stop it, in all caps. Because I want them to know it's annoying to text me in all caps. All the letters are being capitalized. But we do things all in caps because we want something that's hard to express to come through. When Paul is trying to convince you of God's love for you, he shouts this in all caps. You are rooted in God's love. Your very life is in God's love. In the liner notes for A Love Supreme, John Coltrane, that great saxophonist, you know, he writes all these liner notes, and you didn't see them. I read them to you, or part of them. But if you were to you know, actually get a copy of the vinyl, what's really great is Guess how John Coltrane writes those notes? A lot of the times, he's doing what? Writing in all caps. <laughs> in fact, the very ending of the lining notes, he just goes, all praise to God, <laughs> all caps. Why? Because he's trying to express something that's so real that words fall short. That's the same thing, friend. Do you know that when you become a Christian, you are like a little seedling that's planted in the rich soil of God's love. That is the foundation of your life. That is the bedrock of your life, is God's love for you. But man, does it take strength to believe that. That's, you know, why you need the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. So let me just, you know, finish up with this section. You know, verse 19, he goes on and he says, lastly, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see that? It's verse 19. You know, um, all of these things, sort of Paul's building up and building up and building up. You know, that's why I'm shouting so much. I'm trying to match the tone of this passage. In verse 19, he, he finishes with a crescendo, which is, he says, may you be filled with all the fullness of God. <laughs> now, what does that, in the, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that you, Christian, are filled with the fullness of God? Well, there's a couple of options that commentators have pointed out. The first is that when you and I are filled with the fullness of God, it means that we have attained maturity or that we are growing more and more into be the men and women that God created us to be. If you were to look at uh, Ephesians 4 verse 13, you know, it talks about we all need to attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. That is, God wants the church, all of the believers, to be truly that which they were always created to be. So it could be that the fullness of God for you is becoming who you were meant to be. You know, that kind of person that embodies the love of Christ towards others. But I don't actually think that's exactly what Paul means. I think what Paul means is actually something more inexpressibly hard to understand, y'all. <laughs> something more ineffable. And the, even the Bible says we don't know what this is. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter writes that you and I are partakers of the divine nature. 
that you and I somehow become like God. Not that we're going to be God, that's not what I'm saying, but what Peter says is that you and I will partake one day of the divine nature. John writes this in 1 John chapter 3. Notice the connection between the love of God and what we become. John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. (laughs) What does that mean? I don't know, y'all. But it is amazing. And even John says, what does that mean? We don't know yet because Jesus has not returned, but somehow we are going to become like God one day. What does that mean? (laughs) Paul's running out of words. You know, if you were to listen to A Love Supreme this afternoon, it's about 32 minutes, a pretty short album. He recorded it, I think, in a day in 1964. Uh, But at the end of A Love Supreme, the very last song, it's called Psalm, and if you were to read the liner notes, you may notice that he writes a poem You know, he's an artistic guy. He's a saxophonist. So Coltrane writes a poem in the liner notes, and uh, it's a neat poem. It's a psalm. It's all praising God, right? Trying to express the inexpressible. But what's really neat is if you were to take that poem in the liner notes and then listen to the melody that John Coltrane plays at the end of the album on the last song, what you notice is if you were to count the syllables of the poem, guess what? The thing that he plays follows perfectly the poem. So once you read the poem, you know what he's saying through the music. What is he breathing out of him? You can know. Friends, there is a difference between hearing about Jesus and grasping the message of Jesus Christ. You can listen to John Coltrane for the rest of your life and miss what he's actually telling you that it's all about God. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. What's John Coltrane telling you? It's all about a love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. Why is it all about God? Why do we exist to give him glory? Ephesians 3.20 tells us, Paul says, because he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. (laughs) Why is God worth everything that we have and more? Because he can do more than we possibly think. If you want to know God's forgiveness, he will give it to you in spades forever. If you want to have strength to accept that God loves you, he will give you the strength because he gives the spirit without measure. If you want to know who God truly is, it is there for the taking. (laughs) And guess what, friends? Paul says that God could do even more than you're even thinking to ask him right now. This is why the church exists. This is why Paul says the church is to give glory to God and in Christ Jesus throughout all ages because we exist to praise and glorify. But friends, it takes the whole church. It takes all of the saints. It takes our whole bodies. And it takes strength. Let me just finish with this. See if you can track with what I'm saying. Friends, you've got to hear it before you can believe it. 
You've got to hear the message of Jesus Christ before you can believe it. You've got to hear the melody before you sing it. How do you learn a new song? You listen to it. You've got to hear it before you can sing it. You know, Louis Armstrong, that great jazz trumpeter, once said, if you ain't got it in you, you can't blow it out. (laughs) Friends, is God's supreme love in you? Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning, and I ask for the sake of your glory that everyone in this room would ask for strength to know more and more the depth of your love for them. The Lord, that even though it may be overwhelming, that they would accept it. Lord, that you would strengthen them by your Holy Spirit to believe in your love. Father, we ask that you would do far more abundantly than we're even asking or thinking to ask you right now. Father, I pray that people would know your forgiveness truly, that they would see the punishment of their sins as taken on Christ. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help people forgive themselves. Lord, take our eyes off of ourselves, our failures, our shortcomings, and bring our eyes to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we lift to you the brothers and sisters who aren't able to be with us this morning. Father, we lift to you in love Gail Johnston, Lorraine Hoffman, Paul Deller, Randy Templeton, Lynn Toombs, Phoebe Allstad, Marilyn Feeney, Cynthia Spellman, and Noah James. Father, give them strength, body, and soul. Hold them tight. And Lord, we lift to you a sister church here in the Rogue Valley. We lift to you the Journey Church. And Father, we pray for Pastor Ron and that entire congregation, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would do far more abundantly than they're even asking or thinking right now from you. Father, would you show them your grace? And Lord, we ask that for our own congregation as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.